This is Olivia. And you are listening to Bikini Drive-In on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. Our mission is to analyze horror and science fiction films through an intersectional feminist lens while combining elements of screen and media studies, arts criticism, and women and gender studies. Our knowledge and experience will hopefully provide you with access points to feminist theory, art history, and film critique while using horror and science fiction genres as a site of discourse. Since we will be discussing portrayals of horror and violence, there's a content warning, uh, listener discretion is advised, and also there are spoilers ahead. Next up for Werewolf Month, we will be discussing Leonis Alexander Arnby's 2014 film, When Animals Dream. by Sonia Sewell is a shy 16-year-old growing up in a remote fishing village in Denmark where she lives with her father and mother whose mysterious illness has left her wheelchair-bound and nearly catatonic. Virtually friendless and sullen, Marie begins to experience frightening changes in her body that mark her as a dangerous threat. A strange rash develops on her chest, she begins to sprout hair and experience some really gross nail trauma. <laughs> she also becomes aggressive, confident, and sexually active. During this time, Marie begins working at a fish processing plant where her co-workers bully and humiliate her. As Marie's body undergoes more changes, she begins to realize that her family has been hiding strange secrets and that her mother's current condition may relate to what Marie is currently going through. Jill, what's your history with this movie? I actually hadn't heard of this film until you and I were arranging our werewolf month, and mm -hmm. I can't believe I've never heard of it before. Mm -hmm. um, I watched it, yeah, just the other night with you, and it was a really uh, sweet relief after a kind of a slew of more kind of campy, yeah, schlocky, uh, yeah. yeah slashery films mm. yeah what about you um so i'd seen this film on a few different like horror movies you should watch lists for several years before actually sitting down to watch it 
specifically for the show. Uh, it's so haunting and slow compared to the other werewolf movies. Yeah, as you as you mm. mentioned, which are more like horror comedies. Um, and I do love a slow, thoughtful dread piece. So um, there's a lot. It has a lot of the same horror beats as other werewolves, werewolf transformation, and female monster movies. Um, but I feel like the viewer actually gets a cathartic release as Marie enacts revenge on her captors and runs off with her cute butterscotch boyfriend Daniel. <laughs> it's also the first werewolf movie that we've watched where the protagonist doesn't die. Yes. Which is really exciting, mm-hmm. and I think cathartic is a good way to a good word to use. Yeah, mm-hmm. I w- it's really quite striking. The mm-hmm. beautiful, almost slow cinema mm-hmm. aesthetics of this film. Yeah. It's really effective. There's visual parallels to uh, let the right one in mm-hmm. in those landscape shots of like street lights flickering or leaves falling from a tree. And then, yes, this is not an original thought at all. Many other people have made this comparison, yeah. but I do think that it's that it's one that bears repeating. Mm-hmm. Um, it also contains this really striking sense and awareness of time and of being both incredibly tense mm-hmm. and mundane. Yeah, comfortingly mundane mm-hmm. in, in the, within that tension. Mm-hmm. There's a thick presence of time and space and secrecy and it kind of washes over, over you almost like a painting. How, how the color palette is used, it's really quite glorious mm-hmm. and subdued. There's lots of dark greens and blues and grays and then there'll be these pops of rusty orange and red and it has mm-hmm. that kind of like fun sensation of yeah, watching yeah. these gloomy colors go by and getting lulled into this like fishy Denmark world <laughs> and then you see like an orange bucket or someone's yellow toque or something and mm-hmm. your heart kind of jumps a bit and it's like ah fresh air and mm-hmm. yeah it just aids in that sensation of time and presence mm-hmm. and focus uh the cinematographer Nils Vastum did a really great job. Yeah. I totally yeah, probably great. butchered your name, sir. Sorry. Um, yeah. And it's actually interesting. In an interview with April Bennett of Wicked Horror, RB, the director, states that there's a lot. Because um, I guess it was filmed on like, in a small mm-hmm. fishing village, and and that his experience there, there was a lot um, that is read between the lines in that environment. And that was some of the inspiration for how the film should be. And you really feel that with uh, the breath and this like mm-hmm. repressed voice kind of felt throughout the film mm-hmm. restrained horror yes my favorite yes horror genre absolutely my mennonite is showing <laughs> <laughs> um so i have a quote here about generational trauma from the new york times so in mid-october researchers in california published a study of civil war prisoners that came to a remarkable conclusion male children of abused war prisoners were about 10 percent more likely to die than their peers were in any given year after middle age the study reported the findings uh, the authors concluded, supported a uh, uh, epigenetic explanation. Uh, the idea is that trauma can leave a chemical mark on a person's genes, which is then I- which is then passed down to subsequent generations. The mark doesn't directly damage the gene. There's no mutation. Instead, it alters the mechanism by which the gene is converted into function- functioning proteins or expressed. The alter- alteration isn't genetic. It's epigenetic. So I do like how in this film, lycanthropy is depicted as a hereditary disease. Uh, and yeah, more like, like generational trauma, uh, because it is passed down through her mother. And it seems like she's also, um, her mother's memories and are, are passed down and her, the trauma that happened to her as she was attacked is passed down to the daughter. Um, so yeah, it's focused as a depicted as a disease rather than an infection transferred through a vicious attack. It's just a different way of looking at trauma. I think it's really interesting. It's also rather than, uh, following the stages of the moon and other movies that we've discussed, it's more um, of emotional or agitation-based transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I think is really cool. Totally, no, it's a great point. And even in thinking, knowing that 
well, like the trigger it seemed for Marie's mom was it seemed like possibly a sexual assault, mm-hmm. some kind of assault mm-hmm. that occurred. Um, and then for Marie also, there's similar, there's that imprint of mm-hmm. uh, sort of like really aggressive hazing and mm-hmm. gendered violence that she's mm-hmm. victim to. And so to see, yeah, that being like inherited and it's quite, it's so dark to, yeah. to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. It, the film had me thinking a lot about also our current healthcare system um, because of the opening scene with the doctor and, and, and all the sedation that is happening of Marie's mm-hmm. mom um, and how, yeah, it, it, the current system doesn't account for wo- um, women's bodies, trans bodies, any sort of body that can be healthy, but doesn't follow uh, strict and dated ideas of what health mm-hmm. is like. It's wild how many doctors will refuse to discuss any sort of reproductive health with young female clients or how many doctors uh, don't go by the haze, like the health at every size principles. Um, so Marie and her mother are both victims of this system that doesn't know how to treat them. It's very, it's very patriarchal. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so many parallels I find with this within the mental health care system too, mm-hmm. where it's totally under-researched, underfunded, contains so many stigmas about what healthy can look like. And same with elderly bodies, just like sedate them and mm-hmm. hope that they can be ignored. Um, so to be able to see in the film, Marie... Uh, really fight against that and be free at the end and she's worked so hard to escape those who are trying to make her disappear and trying to make her mother disappear and trying to make women's bodies and issues disappear. Mm-hmm. So, it, yeah, it's totally cathartic in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, her self-awareness and resistance to be subdued is exactly what makes her dangerous and I think yeah. this work of lycanthropy folklore as an allegory for patriarchal anxieties surrounding female puberty, sexuality, mm-hmm. and empowerment is very successful mm-hmm. not a new concept but i think it handled it's cool yeah and it's handled in a really like human way mm-hmm. i also pretty appreciated that there is a woman in the team who's hunting down marie at the end mm-hmm. because it's like an awareness of the internalized misogyny that is also can be ingrained in absolutely mm-hmm. anyone. anyone um in the opening scene uh, marie is at the doctor's office being i guess looking at the rash on her chest mm-hmm. but he's almost he's looking at her like she's an animal mm-hmm and like he looks at her gums like he would look at like a dog and like checks her back it's just very like cut off and and it, of course like her doctor and her father like don't discuss like what is going on with her at all they they mm-hmm. discuss it together so it's almost like she's treated like an animal she's treated like property she has no sort of agency over her own health completely yeah, yeah.
Yeah, I totally agree with your point that um, the film, it's like a metaphor about how society views female sexuality and female sexual agency as dangerous, needing to be policed and suppressed. Um, it is interesting how the, the doctor, when they're, when they finally sort of start to tell Marie about her condition or her, yeah, werewolfism, lycanthropy, <laughs> um, that they describe it as like, you're going to feel more aggressive. You're going to have hair in new places. Like that's how you describe e puberty. Yeah. It's so funny. Um, it's also, <laughs> I also like how she sort of navigates the shame of going through puberty, shame of, of your body changing. Mm -hmm. um, like at first she's, she seems very ashamed of um, her rash or like her hair showing up. But then as the story goes, it's like she sort of navigates between shame and wanting to show her body mm -hmm. and then her hair and then um, in her general transformation. And she it's actually, she, it's like a political move almost. Like especially at her mother's funeral when her nails yeah. are really starting to show and she goes, it's such a power move. And she goes to serve everyone coffee to show them that her nails are changing. Mm -hmm. It's so rad. She owns it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a trope in horror films, particularly slasher films. It refers to the last girl or woman alive to confront the killer, ostensibly the one left to tell a story. The final girl has been observed in many films, including Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, Alien, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Scream. The term was coined by Carol J. Clover in her book Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film. Clover suggested that in these films, the viewer began uh, begins by sharing the perspective of the killer, but experiences as a shift in identification to the final girl partway through the film. So in this one, the Marie Marie is both the final girl final girl, yeah, survivor and the monster, um, yet is not vilified. Similar to Ginger and Ginger Snaps, Jennifer Jennifer's body and Carrie in Carrie. Yeah. I also um, at the end of the film, Butterscotch boyfriend doesn't necessarily rescue her. Like he mm -hmm. helps in her escape from the captors, but then just hides as she goes and murders everybody. Yeah, does what she needs to yeah. do. Yeah. So she's not a damsel at all, yeah. which I appreciate. I concur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it is exciting and nice to see these like 
women monsters mm-hmm. just doing what they need to yeah, do. Yeah. Killing all the men in dukes. <laughs> Um, well, I view this as a feminist film. I do often wonder why male directors intend to make these films. Mm-hmm. I understand there's lots of, obviously, crew and feminists on set, yada yada. Yeah. But yeah, so especially as R&B, uh, he stated in an interview with uh, April Bennett, again, of Wicked Horror, that it's um, almost more the... Con- he. See, he didn't really like know why, but that he was interested in the contrast of what he deems to be, quote unquote, sensitive, fragile, almost innocent girl and the creature that she transforms into. So it's kind of like he is he just perpetuating these ideas of the secretive Mm -hmm. woman, the sensitive woman, the mysterious woman. He also discusses innocence a lot and that in filming, maintaining Marie's innocence not even marie but what's the actress's name again my mind just went sonia sonia's innocence so not even with that it's the character it's like so this his his like obsession innocence obsession is pretty gross and strange but then it's it's interesting because it is like arguably like a feminist narrative but then like being like ah i can't Better people be making yeah, movies. Yeah, no like, uh, Why is your focus the actress's innocence? Yeah, that was a big. Ew, part of this but then interview. that's like, there were so many reviews that I read that were, that were more, on the father's side, or like, mm, oh, it's so hard for him. But it's like, interesting. No, her body's changing, and the town wants to kill her. So it's just yeah. like so. That's so, like the idea that you want to keep her innocence is so like, patronizing. Completely. Yeah. Like the dad, like having to like. Maintain girls' innocence. Yeah. And, and control that them. The directors. I mean, obviously, that's, like, not where the film goes. But yeah. that that was so critical in, like, you... Yeah. Like, he had that yeah. in mind. Yeah. So that's so strange. I know. And then it's also what you just said, too. Interesting mm-hmm. to hear of people watching the film. And probably because they're conditioned mm-hmm. to the protagonist is usually, like, the male or the father role mm-hmm. or whatever conditioned to then empathize with his character mm-hmm. whereas it's like no it's actually not yeah he's not the protagonist in no. this movie no Ugh. <laughs> uh, I have another quote here from uh, having to post um, it's discussing the sexual assault allegation against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh by Christine yes. Blasey Ford uh, who came forward as his accuser after her identity and story were leaked um it's just discussing the idea of like boys will be boys. So, but here's the truth about boys will be boys. If boys will be boys, girls will be assaulted. Boys will misbehave and women will bear the brunt of it. We've been socialized to believe through experience and TV and movies that this is not just what high school looks like, but that this is what sex looks like. Girls say no, boys press on, unable to keep stop themselves. That's maybe, uh, that maybe it's not ideal, but that it's okay. It's been accepted as some kind of youthful sexual standard. These are bad dates or bad sex, but not attacks or assault. Because that would mean all these normal stories are uh, normal stories are of assault, trauma, or at the very least, discomfort is a normal, accepted part of the female sexual experience. So I thought this made me think of the sort of hazing or bullying that happens at the fish plant where she works. Mm-hmm. Um, Marie is routinely looked at and gawked at, and like just and it's harassed. normalized. It's She's totally normalized. Harassed, yeah. So yeah. So, yeah, the male aggression in the film is normalized to the point of tradition, while Marie is seen as a threat that needs to be controlled. Mm-hmm. 
Because of Marie's position as other through her transformation, family, and gender, she's very vulnerable Vulnerable in the small town. She's constantly being looked at, humiliated, and her body is public do- domain as her father, doctor, uh, father and doctor pathologize her. And she yeah, has to endure sexual violence in the workplace, but it's considered a prank. Mm-hmm. Um, she has no bodily autonomy until she transforms into a monster, I would say. Yep. Mm-hmm. So this film does have me thinking lots about cruelty, about isolation, and about love. And the relationships between Marie and her mother and father are really quite tender. Even though her mother doesn't speak, you can sense there's a care and a sadness that surrounds their relationship. And and a knowing, like, they are connected through through dreams. There's some sort mm-hmm. of, like, imprinting that's happening. Mm-hmm. And same with the father and his will. And also failed attempts at protecting mm-hmm. his family. Uh, Marie's relationship with Daniel, her little boyfriend, is refreshing to see. Mm-hmm. He doesn't yeah, he doesn't seduce her or rescue her. They act as companions mm-hmm. through through her struggles. Um, a line that her father often says is, "You're beautiful. Don't take any crap." And I think it's uh, it just <laughs> like I don't know. It hits my heart. I find it telling of their caring and patient relationship that he has with with Marie's mother and with with her. It's kind of yeah yeah. You, do you disagree? <laughs> I, well, the dad is just such a, like, failed patriarch. But I like that. I know, I know, I know. I, I like, like it. I like it. Yeah, because he's, he's... trying his best, but he's, like, still following these old rules that, like, women need to be controlled in order to be protected. Yeah, because he's also, but by him staying with his family, staying mm-hmm. with Marie's mom, he's also being isolated. Mm-hmm. He also is being... Um, what's the word I want? Like ostracized yeah, from his community. Totally. So he's not benefiting from patriarchy. He's not, mm-hmm. but he's also, um, it's hurting him too. And so I think that oh, it is. Oh, I love that. It is. Patriarchy is bad yeah, for everybody. It's bad for everyone. And I think that you can see that in, in the dad. So. So Jill, I have a question for you. Yeah. Do you have a favorite horror movie soundtrack? Or can you think of a film that would be better with a different soundtrack? Mm-hmm. One of the tops is, we were just uh, discussing this together, and mm-hmm. so I know that we have some similar mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the tops, definitely Suspiria, because the Goblin soundtrack is so good. Original Suspiria. Yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes, yes. Oh my gosh. Oh. And again, we will both be. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The flip side of that, the new Suspiria, as we've discussed. Lyrics. So Tom York, as soon as he starts Ugh. singing, it's like, nope, I no, want to plug my ears. Yeah. It I'm, took me it completely to- yeah, out of it. Same. It ruined the fantasy of this. It truly did. Dance world. Gosh, I, I'm not oh already God, not I a hate, Radiohead I hate fan. Radiohead. So then to like just hear his voice, and it's like knowing what the original... <laughs> and knowing what no, the original uh, is, it's just so beautiful. Yeah. But anyway, um, it follows. <laughs> it's also really great. Uh, Cynthia stuff. Um, David Lynch's Eraserhead. I don't know if that's horror, whatever. It's art house. Who knows? Um, but that scene, and it's him singing the In Heaven song. And it's such a beautiful moment in film history. And I think about it like really quite often. Mm-hmm. Also, in Fantasia, again, not exactly horror, but super heckin' effective. They're frightening. Oh my gosh, when the Sections. when Stravinsky's Rites of Spring is playing and the dinosaurs are dying in the oh, hot sun and they're like, oh, oh. Oh, so sad. I remember seeing that as a kid and it really affected me and still today just thinking of that scene, I'm like, ah. Yeah, heartbreaking. over here. Heartbreaking. <laughs> yes. 
the same favorites yeah. so yeah the original soundtrack uh suspiria soundtrack to goblin uh, i also had it follows mandy mm -hmm. uh, under the skin and alien so anything that's like all-encompassing and ominous yes. without any lyrics with one exception and that is <laughs> uh the loved ones let me just get the song title here so not pretty enough by casey chambers <laughs> is played over and over again in the loved ones so this teenage girl just listens to this one sickly sweet pop song over and over again while she's torturing teen boys and it's like so beyond deranged it's amazing um a <laughs> couple of ones that I, I think i think the howling would really be better if it had a different soundtrack and i mentioned this last week where oh, it's like gosh, adam's sorry. family clown town harpsichord it's so silly oh it's so goofy I, but i think if it was <laughs> just different it would have been a different i don't know different yeah. better music would have helped a lot i think yeah. Um, and then, yeah, new Suspiria. Mm -hmm. Tom York's voice just brought me out of that. Yep. World. Took me right out of it. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm watching a music video. Yep. Yep. Great. Yep. Am I not pretty enough? Is my heart too broken? Do I cry too much? Am I too outspoken? Don't I make you laugh? Everyone should watch The Loved Ones. It's so good. I want to see it so bad. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's it for Bikini Drive-In this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Um, you can email us your questions or suggestions or... Or corrections. Or if we no, uh, don't dumb. correct me. Well, I might have, you know, you never know you if never know. you know better than me. Let me know. <laughs> or don't. Or word it nicely. <laughs> anyway, you can reach us at bikinidrivein at gmail.com or on Facebook, just Bikini Drive-In. Yes. Okay. Thanks so much. You can listen Thanks. to us every Sunday at 4.30 on CKUW 95.9 FM. Bye. Bye.
You're listening to CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Our frequency celebrates diversity.